to return to Romans 13. In view of the fact that the civil government is an ordinance of God, even the infamous Nero a minister of God, we must be subject not only for wrath, fear of punishment, but also for conscience sake. That is, as a duty we owe to God, we must submit to them in the place God has put them. For this cause, as a duty you owe to God, pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing, executing wrath. This is exactly what Christ did, paid taxes, although in doing so he classed himself as a stranger and not a child of human government, the same government according to which Paul now writes to the Christians at Rome. As God appoints ministers having characters fitted to do the work for which he appoints them, and Nero was a chosen minister to do this work, it is clear that a true, humble, faithful Christian could not be chosen to do the same work. The relation Christians bear to this government is expressed by the words, Be subject. The same relationship and the duties required by it are presented in Titus 3, verse 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Again, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evil doers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to shame the ignorance of foolish men as free, and not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 Here the end for which human government was ordained, and the special conditions of the people under these governments are kept constantly in view by the apostle. When writing to those at Rome directly under the rule of the king, he told them to be subject to the king as supreme. In the provinces distant from Rome, to which governors were sent, he says to them, Be subject to governors, as unto them that are sent for the punishment of evildoers. The human governments of the New Testament dispensation were but a continuance of those of the Old Testament, and of precisely the same nature. The people of God must needs occupy something of a different position to them now, as their existence under the old dispensation was national and limited to certain territories, hence the limits were local and territorial lines. Now God's kingdom is spiritual and universal. It can exist in and under any and all the kingdoms of the earth, but it is of none." While existing in them, it is as essentially distinct and separate from all as the kingdom of Israel was distinct and separate from the human governments by which it was surrounded and whose destruction it sought. Be subject to, submit to. Both translated from one word are the terms that the Spirit of God uses to define the Christian's connection with and prescribe the duty he owes to these governments. Submit means to yield one's person to the power of another, to give up resistance, to surrender. It carries the idea that the person or body that submits is entirely distinct and separate from and in antagonism to the person or body to which it submits. The Christian, then, is not part of the body to which he submits or to which he brings himself under subjection. He is distinct and separate from it. 
we cannot be said to submit to ourselves or to a body of which we are a part and parcel, and with which we are in harmony, and which we aid to conduct or manage. Submission carries the idea of antagonism and opposition which are restrained and held in abeyance. This is the relationship everywhere defined as that which connects the Christian with the governments under which they live. They are to submit to the powers that be, not to the powers they prefer, not the powers they may believe constitutional or best, but those they are under. It is argued against this that we are commanded to submit to God, children to their parents, wives to their husbands, and the members to the elders. Therefore, antagonism is not involved in the expression. Antagonism in all these relations is the ground of the admonition. Were there none, there would be no need of the admonition, and the admonition requires only a submission without active participation. But in these relations to God, to the parents, to husbands, to elders, still other terms as love and honor are added. To submit to is to restrain that antagonism that it shall not grow into active resistance by the party in subjection. If no further command was given to regulate these relations than to submit, all that could be required would be not to let this difference and the antagonism grow into active conflict. But we are told not only to submit to God, but to love Him with all the soul and the mind and the body. This leads to active, hearty, soul-felt participation in carrying forward His government. So the child is commanded to love the parent, the wife, her husband, and all the members of the church must have a care one for another. They were to be members of one another and to labor together for their mutual good, the advancement of their common cause, to love as brethren and be true children of God. When in a state of separation and rebellion, the command first is, Submit, do not actively antagonize or rebel, then from that they are to grow up in these closer relations and work to full-hearted participation, fellowship, oneness in each of these relations. It is the obligation of oneness in these higher relations that requires and involves the joint support and participation. But no higher or closer relation than submission is required towards civil government. All the Christians can do in that relation is to refrain from active antagonism and conflict, and to quietly and passively submit within the prescribed limits. But no intimation of obligation or license to participate in or in any wise fellowship and support is found. This rule affords the Christian the only safe guidance amid the strifes and conflicts of the kingdoms of earth for supremacy. He is to submit to whatever one he may fall under. He is to become the partisan, the supporter, the defender of none. Daniel clearly acted on this principle. When under the government of Babylon he submitted to Nebuchadnezzar and was faithful and true to him as his slave. When Babylon was overthrown by the Medo-Persian he submitted to Darius and served him with equal fidelity. This submission to the human was always modified and limited by the highest obligation to obey God. Hence Daniel, trustworthy as a slave in all things that did not conflict with duty to God, went into the lion's den rather than disobey him. So with Christ, so with Peter, James, and John, and all true Christians. But they are to submit, be subject to, not participate in the governments under which they live.
In Luke 22, verse 24, Christ, when there was strife among the disciples, said, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For which is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you as one that serveth. Ye are they that continue with me in my temptations, and I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. His disciples certainly could not serve in the earthly kingdoms, where the principles of service were in direct antagonism to the principles that must govern his servants and his kingdom. He places in contrast to the earthly kingdom. This kingdom he appoints to them as his Father had appointed to him. This kingdom would be governed by the principles he proclaimed. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Here the human governments are placed among the powers of the wicked one, and their entire work was against the church, and the Christian must needs clothe himself with the whole armor of God that he might withstand them and fight against them as enemies of God. The friendship of the world is enmity with God, Whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 4, verse 4. Friendship to the world means friendship to its institutions and governments. I exhort, therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. This scripture admonishes us to pray for kings, for rulers, and those who are in authority over us. And the question comes in, can we pray for the rulers if these kingdoms are organized in opposition to the kingdom of God and by those in rebellion against God? Again, it is said, what we pray for we must work for. If we pray for rulers and for good rulers, we must work to obtain them, encourage and sustain them. It is true that we should work for that for which we pray. Look at the teaching of this scripture again. Prayers, supplications, thanksgiving for rulers and all that are in authority. For what? That they may be strong and prosper and be permanent as rulers? Nay, but that we Christians within the domain of those in authority may be able to lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Not that their kingdoms may be blessed, prospered, strengthened, or built up, but that God's children may be blessed. The prayer is not for the good of the human ruler, but of the Christian subjects. We find precisely a similar case in Jeremiah 29, verse 7. The Jews were in captivity in Babylon, were sent there on account of their wickedness. God intended, as was shown in a former article, in a few years to destroy Babylon as the most corrupt and wicked of all nations of earth. It was to be cursed, blighted forever on account of its wickedness. Yet Jeremiah writes to those Jews in Babylon, 
Seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. There was no thought of good to Babylon, but of destruction and ruin. Yet while you are in the wicked city, seek the peace of the city, because in its peace ye shall have peace. In seeking the peace of the city, they were not to strengthen or build it up or identify themselves with Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet warned the people to do no violence in order to be freed from a hated rule. But if they would pursue that course of submission that will bring peace to the wicked and doomed city while it remains, their own peace and quiet will be promoted. Again, this teaches that servants of God need not do violence to deliver themselves from the power of wicked rulers, for if they will live quietly, use no violence, they will find favor and peace, and God will use other wicked nations to overthrow their oppressors and so bring deliverance to them. The wicked are the sword of the Lord. To pray for rulers that we may lead peaceable lives does not involve a participation in the affairs of government. This would destroy the peace and quiet of life, the thing to be sought. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Here his resurrection from the dead and the open and declared triumph over the devil in the resurrection is called the spoiling and triumphing over the powers and principalities of earth. It is a recognition that to triumph over the devil was to triumph over, spoil, and destroy his kingdoms or principalities on earth. Christ triumphed over him in the grave. For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might deliver him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It may be questioned, if Christ triumphed over the devil, overcame him in the grave, how is it that he still exerts an influence and dominion over earth? God committed the rule of the world to men. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That is, God having committed to man the rule of the world, he will not turn from it and destroy man or take from him the rule of the world and give it to another class of beings. Hence, the world and the whole under creation must share man's destiny, whatever that may be. God does not force man to follow him. He showed to man his superiority to the devil, conquered him in his own dominion, led captivity or death captive, and gave gifts unto men. Yet man slowly, reluctantly accepts the rule of God, and although death was conquered and the way of man's escape made plain, deliverance can come to the world only as man chooses to resist the devil and obey God. He still has the power to serve the devil, and in face of all that God has done to deliver him from the evil dominion, the world is still under bondage still refuses freedom from sin. Deliverance comes, but it comes slowly. 
Because man is unwilling to serve God, he still serves in the human kingdoms instead of the kingdom of God.